0: I know that this has been a long time coming. Lord Jesus, we are finally here, y'all.
1: Welcome to episode 14 of How We Win. All over the country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to jump in and make a difference right now. The best antidote for anxiety is action. On today's episode, DeRay is here. Civil rights activist DeRay McKesson is a leading voice in the Black Lives Matter movement, author of On the Other Side of Freedom, A Case for Hope, and of course, the host of Crooked Media's podcast, Pod Save the People. We'll talk about the stories that the media isn't covering right now, and hear DeRay's advice on what we need to be doing in the run-up to Election Day. I'm Steve Pearson, and this is how we win.
0: Rocket Pro Insight gives real estate agents full visibility into the loan status of each of their clients, making it easier than ever to help their clients strengthen their offers with a verified approval. Plus, agents can adjust a client's approval letter amount in real time. Sign up today at rocketpro.com slash real estate and get the freedom to check a client's progress from anywhere at any time. Call for terms and details. Equal housing lender. License in 50 states. NMLS number 3030. Verified approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. We
1: have a... S- Special pre-Thanksgiving episode of How We Win today. Mariah is sadly on vacation, although I guess it's not sad for her. But she's really bummed to be missing out on this episode. But we've got civil rights leader and the host of Pod Save the People, DeRay McKesson, with us. DeRay, thanks for joining me
0: today. Hey, it is an honor to be here.
1: Oh, the honor is mine, and I really appreciate you being here. Usually, Mariah and I start off by... um, talking a little bit about the news. So before we get into your story, one thing that we've been doing lately is getting really sucked into the impeachment vortex, which is necessary, but it does overshadow other important stories that aren't getting reported. So what's your top need-to-know story that we aren't hearing right now?
0: Oh, um, I think there are a ton of stories. You know, one of the things I'll point to the people is that every week we cover four things in the news you don't know so we don't really do a lot of trump we do everything but trump Hmm. and one of the things that we talked about recently uh that i thought was really wild and fascinating is that october of 2019 is the first month since we started recording this data in the 80s that no refugee was resettled in the united states yeah i read that zero So you think about like the net effect of what the Trump administration is doing is actually really wild. And I was at a thing not too long ago, like I was at a thing before the election, actually. And somebody said if Trump wins, uh, trying to undo the damage will be like trying to unring a bell. And I thought that was like really apt. I thought that was a really good way to put it. Um, The other thing is I spend most of my time on police. Like that is sort of the issue that brought me to this work. It's the issue that keeps me in the work. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the police have killed more people since the protests, not less. A third of all the people killed by a stranger in the United States is actually killed by a police officer, and this is the first year ever where Black people are more afraid of being killed by a police officer than being killed by community violence. So the issues around policing continue to be really, really intense, and I think people just think because of the because of the attention, like because of the conversation, because everybody who's listening can probably name one, two, three victims of police violence in a way that they literally just could not before this moment. Right. I think that people think that it must have gotten better and it didn't.
1: I did not know that. I did not know that it had, it's been worse. And, um, and I just, as you said, it does feel like there's an increasing awareness about it all. We see it and social media obviously has been huge. I want to talk to you a little bit more about that later, but, I that's um that is sad to report. I did not know that it had gotten worse. Although it doesn't surprise me because we don't exactly have an administration that's you know working hard on those issues.
0: Yes. Well the thing about the police that's interesting is that it really is a local issue. So there are eighteen thousand police departments around the country. The federal government, you can already name uh you can name the biggest police departments at the federal level. So you know um ICE, you know Border Patrol, mm-hmm. and you know the FBI. So there's some things that they can do differently, obviously, especially ice and border patrol. but most of the policing issues uh, are happening at the local level, at states and at cities and towns.
1: Right. well let me let me ask you this segues into what you were just talking about. We had another dim debate last week. this time it was in Atlanta. and uh, there's been a lot of talk about the candidates' lack of traction with black voters. Obviously, criminal justice reform and justice in general is important to black voters. should be to everybody. But this did come up during the debate with Senator Harris and Mayor Buttigieg having an interesting exchange. What do you think it's going to take for these candidates, including Senator Harris and Senator Booker, to earn more support from black voters?
0: You know... I think that if there I think there's something about Corey, I think people like Corey. I don't I don't think many people dislike Corey. Mm-hmm. I think that the hard part about Corey is I think that people want a fighter in this moment. And I don't know if people think of Corey as a fighter. So mm-hmm. I think that his conversation about love and sort of not seeing the bad in people, it's like that's up against a Republican Party that literally would erase Corey from the face of the earth if they could, and they are actively trying to erase everybody that looks like him, right? Yeah. I think with Kamala, um, I think that there's some things about Kamala's record that she just waited to get out in front of. And like, whether there was a, resp- a good answer or not, I think that she just waited so long. And because she waited so long, people started to like put in their own narrative. I think she still has an opportunity uh, to recover, but I, I just think that they just waited too long. You know, I think that that really killed her in the end in terms of like the public narrative, but I don't think it's too late. That's interesting.
1: And, You have your front runners. Obviously, Joe Biden has the most support and conventional wisdom would say it's because he was Obama's vice president and everyone knows him. What about like Elizabeth Warren and the other front runners, Bernie, Pete? What do they have to do to um, to earn a look from black voters?
0: Yeah, I think that a lot of people, I think a lot of black people uh, sort of, I think the Bernie campaign resonated with people in 2016. I think it's continuing to resonate with people. I think that Warren Warren's plans, I think, are resonating with a lot of people. You saw the group of 100 black women who supported her. I think that that is not insignificant. I think yeah. that uh, it is both an Im- important reminder of the role that black women have continued to play in the party. I think that the way they rolled it out was really smart. I think that the uh, the way that they have continued to advocate for her is really smart. Uh, Pete, you know, is polling really low with black voters. I think that Pete keeps changing to people and I don't think that makes sense. Right. Like, I, I think that there's a question of like, what is what does Pete believe that I think is troubling for a lot of people? I've read the Douglas plan. I think the plan sort of is interesting. I, I think that Pete is sort of like a centrist. I think that he has publicly agreed to most things that people have already publicly agreed to, so I don't know where the bold ideas are. Right. Uh, when I think about Pete's campaign, I'm trying to think of who else is there, Oh, Biden. I think that people like Biden are only because they think he can win. Like, there's something about, there is a bravado to Biden that I actually do understand. That like, if I had been in as many elections as he has been in, and for as long as he's been in, I probably would think that I'll win everything too, right? Because like, (laughs) he literally, every time somebody's like, you can't do it, it won't work. Like, it's impossible. I mean, he's literally been in office for, he's been elected for a long time. Yeah. And there's something about that that I think has to, um, has to like lead you to believe that like you will just win. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And uh, I know that we all agree. No matter who makes it through the primary, we're all going to work our tails off to make sure that they replace Trump. Because
0: that's super important. Oh, absolutely. Because he got to go, right? <laughs> He's he got to go.
1: go. So, um, well, it's Thanksgiving week, and at my dinner table we do something with our daughter or we do roses and thorns and we say, you know, like what brought us joy and what pissed us off. So um, I thought we'd try some roses and thorns uh, right now uh, just with the last week. I'll start what brought me joy. There's so many things actually this week that brought me joy. One very recently, uh, federal subpoenas are seeking information on Giuliani's consulting business. They're looking deeper into Giuliani's business I'm super curious about that, but that's not the thing that really brought me the most joy. I actually found something. I don't know if you knew this because this is old. This is from 2016, but I just saw it. Apparently, uh, BuzzFeed developed a font based on Trump's handwriting that's called Tiny Hands, <laughs> <laughs> or it's called I love t- it. called Tiny Hand. That brought me a lot of joy, and so we're going to post a link to that font where you can download it on our, our page so you can enjoy that over the holidays. That's what brought me joy. It. What's brought it. you joy this week, Dre? You were singing when we uh, hooked up, so <laughs> something brought you joy.
0: Yeah, so I, don't, I think I'm just singing because I'm in a good mood today, but uh, a Parasite, I saw the movie Parasite, best movie I've seen all year, saw brilliant. Saw it last night, too. We saw it last night. Brilliant. I thought it was Brilliant. Did you think it was brilliant? I thought it was
1: absolutely brilliant. It was amazing. We left with our jaws wide open.
0: Yeah, I thought that like if you want to do a movie that is relevant, that says something, that makes you think, that like does all those things, like literally I thought it was I thought it was just so good, you know, like just good. So that is, yeah, that's my fault. I don't know who's doing their press because it's not getting as much play as it should be getting. I found out about it because my, my father has always been into movies. Like he just is a movie. He's been into movies since VHS tapes. We had like hundreds of VHS tapes in the house when we were kids. Uh, so he saw it and then my sister saw it. And I was talking, I talked to my sister all the time and I she and I were on the phone and she was like, did you see Parasite? And I'm like, no. So me and my friend went and it's like, yeah, she just, I mean, it. the movie is just solid, you know? God, yeah.
1: We could, we could go down a parasite wormhole. See what I did there? Uh, <laughs> yeah! Hey there. Um, no, we could really go down a wormhole on that because there was so many layers to it. And just when you thought it was going to be about this, then it takes this turn. I don't know. Anyway, go see Parasite. All right. Well, then um, I'll go with what pissed me off this week. Um Again, so many things have pissed me off this week. Uh, Nunes continues to piss me off with his zoot suit wannabe wearing jacket, who we now know is accused of working with Ukrainian officials to dig up dirt on the Bidens as well. But that's not what really pissed me off. This is a story from The Washington Post from a few days ago. Trump opened up Camp David as a quote unquote adult playground to woo GOP lawmakers during the impeachment. So apparently – I don't know if you heard about this – apparently Mulvaney and top White House officials have been hosting weekend getaways for Republicans at Camp David, seeking to butter them up on, before the impeachment vote. They, the casual itinerary includes making schmores over the campfire, going hiking, shooting clay pigeons, schmoozing with Trump officials, some of who are staying overnight with the lawmakers, all, of course, on the taxpayer's dime that's normal Nuts. right <laughs>
0: right that is so it is you know just the way that this administration has just abused every process is is truly stunning you know it's one of those things where you're like this is really uh something else uh, the thing that has the thing that um pissed me off this this past week uh is that it recently came out that so in Baltimore, there was a whole task force of the police that was indicted for corruption. Like this entire task force uh, gets sent to jail. Right. And so that happened. But there was this one officer who was supposed to testify against the task force who got killed the day before he was supposed to testify. So he gets killed right. in an alley in the middle of the morning uh, with his partner there. And they, the police have been trying to convince us that it was a suicide. So that happened a while ago. Wow. They lock down the neighborhood. They do all this stuff, can't find who killed them. Then they say suicide. You're like, okay. And then uh, recently, this is what just happened. Recently, the police department comes out and says, after all this investigation, supposedly, the police come out and say, you know what? It was a suicide investigation closed. And then the police union comes out and says, the police, are, the police chief is lying The investigation is not closed. Then the state's attorney comes out in Baltimore and she says, I don't know why the police said that. The investigation is not closed. And then the police chief comes back out and says, I misspoke. The investigation is not closed. And it's like, "Okay, what is going on? Wow. That just sounds like some blatant right out in the open corruption to me. Yeah, you're like, you know what, I don't know what the answer is, but I surely know that y'all not telling us the truth, right? I might not know everything, but somebody is lying in this group of people, and that's awkward. Well, here's what
1: I want everyone to do this week. We always give people a, a to-do list, and um, we don't say it enough because it can't be said enough. It For me, it's all about the Senate, so... We have a new little URL for you to go to. URL. Go to swingleft.org/slash by mitch b y e m i t c h by mitch to donate to our Senate fund and make sure that they're not taking vacations at Camp David on on our dime while they're supposed to be impeaching a president for blatant wrongdoing. How can we help with uh, the blatant police corruption in in Baltimore and in other? other places. How can we support local organizations that are that are fighting against Yeah, that?
0: so it starts out, so we started this, this initiative called Campaign Zero, this idea that we can live in a world where the police don't kill people. We can live in a world where people sort of reframe the idea of safety in ways that don't include the police. Uh, so if you go to joincampaignzero.org, you can see all the projects. But the two biggest ones is we know that the rules by which officers can use force in communities matter a lot. And if you go to useofforceproject.org, you can see the rules in your City. We started with the hundred biggest cities. So, in a lot of places that you think are progressive, you'd be shocked to know that uh, that the rules aren't actually progressive. So, you look at uh, New York City, for instance. After Garner gets killed, De Blasio actually removed the ban on chokeholds. De Blasio removed the restriction onto shooting into moving vehicles, and then he removed the requirement that deadly force be used as a last resort. So, there are a lot of places across the country where the rules are actually just bad, and we know that the rules are. The rules really matter, you know? Right. The other one is checkthepolice.org. So checkthepolice.org is where you go to see the police union contracts. And you can actually see, like, what is happening with the rules around discipline in your your city, in your state. And it's fascinating. People don't realize that in California, the law says that any investigation over a year— can never lead to discipline regardless of the outcome like that is the rule you know like that doesn't make sense so there are a lot of those things that if people knew more they'd fight against them uh, and what we found by making all this data public is is really powerful because what you find is that when activists like know what to push up against they organize and they do it so like we worked with uh, organizers in austin working with some in portland uh really powerful right
1: for people who don't don't know who you are, um, DeRay McCaston, You're a civil rights activist. You've been a leading voice in the Black Lives Matter movement. Co-founder, as you said, of Campaign Zero. You also have a book called "On the Other Side of Freedom: A Case for Hope." You were a teacher and an, an administrator before you jumped in as an activist and helped lead Black Lives Matter. Were you organizing before that? When did you When did you start organizing?
0: Yeah. So I was a youth organizer in Baltimore, uh, when I was a teenager and I did all the stuff in nonprofits. I, uh, I was on the state student council and the county student council and did a lot of student government stuff from sixth grade to senior in college. So yeah. I had done some organizing, but teaching really changed my life. It wasn't until I became a teacher that I, I started to see how systems worked, uh, intimately. Like that was my, because as, as a youth organizer, I sort of worked outside of systems, sort of pushing and fighting. And then, as a teacher, I was both sort of advocating on the outside about things for student equity and, and about educational equity, uh, but I was every single day walking into a classroom, and it was immediate and it was intense. And you know, my kids expected me to come prepared and. And that really changed a lot. So the only reason I went to Ferguson at all was because a kid had been killed, right? Like, it was like a kid got killed, there was a call to come, and it's like the least I could do is go stand in the street because a kid got killed, right? Like, that was the very least I could do, and that's why I went. So uh, the issues around education are the things that brought me to the understanding of social justice in this way. And then I got tear gassed on the second I was in St. Louis. It changed my life mm. in terms of making me sort of intimately clear that nobody should have to experience this. And I saw it in such a stark way. So uh, so that was the beginning for me.
1: And um, you ran for mayor of Baltimore. What was that experience like? What did
0: that teach you about how campaigns were organized? Yeah, running was really, you know, intense. I think that, you know, Baltimore, there had... In most cities, uh, name recognition really matters, right? Like That is why people are voting for people. In a city like Baltimore, uh, name recognition is a big deal. So you find the same incumbents over and over, uh, which is a hard thing to run up against. I'll never forget when I decided to run. I initially was like, you know, let me sit down and think about, I have a big platform. Let me sit down and try and think about whose campaign I can work on. I go to, like, make a decision about working a campaign, and I sit down, and I and I look, and I realize, like, literally nobody has a platform, no plans. Like, everybody is running on personality, like, every single <laughs> candidate. And I'm like, that is wild, right? Like, we are a major American city. Like, people deserve something. I mean, like, some type of plan. And then it was like, well, I don't know whose campaign I work on. And then it was like, you know what? I can at the very least offer a set of ideas that'll push the city forward. And uh, it was interesting going to forums and stuff, because I think that the public, especially in Baltimore is so used to not hearing answers from elected officials or not hearing substance. After a while I was in these forums and I saw the people I was running against literally deliver the same like tired non answers over and over. And people just hadn't heard answers in so long. So that was really interesting to go to people's houses and to be in living rooms and to hear people talk and stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. Uh, That was interesting. I saw the way money worked. You know, in Baltimore or Maryland, you can't use debit cards on campaigns, which is interesting. So you essentially have to have that. You can only write checks. So Hmm. you essentially have to have the money up front to be able to do anything, which is it totally privileges wealthy people. Right. So, for instance, we would order something, and if we had to pay same day— which is most things, like most things aren't like, hello, please take a check. Like a lot of people want the money now. We would essentially have to like pay for it out of our personal account and then get reimbursed later because we couldn't use a debit card on the account. So even though we raised a lot of money, it was, it was uh, what I understood for the first time is that there's a difference between raising money and having the internal capacity to spend money. Uh, those are not always synonymous. So, like, I learned a lot about that. But incredible experience. I think that we have to be as organized on the inside as we are on the outside. That this is not an either or, but a both and.
1: Hmm, that's a good point. Yep, we need to do it all. I wanted to ask you. Uh, this is something interesting. There's been some uh, new articles about this, but you know, Black Lives Matter and other movements have definitely tapped into social media. As a really powerful tool for exposing the injustice, like we talked about earlier, um, and also just for organizing events and bringing people together. But these messages were manipulated in the last election and continue to be today, as you know. There's a fascinating and chilling article uh, just today in Rolling Stone called that uplifting tweet you just shared, a Russian troll sent it. That is outlining the subtle and effective tactics of of Russian trolls. So as we continue to organize for the election in 2020, how can we safeguard against these messages being distorted and dividing
0: us? I think I need to read that article um, it's, it's pr- to really, see what yeah. the tactics are. You know, the Internet is so different than it was even in 2014. I remember the trolls that followed us in 2014 and they called my, my office and tried to get me fired. Like, I remember all that stuff. You know, I don't know what the advice is in this moment besides, like, you know, I'm really intentional about who I follow on Twitter specifically because it's people that I follow for a long time or people that are trusted sources. So when they put something on the timeline, I know that it matters. Like, I know it's real. I've tried to cut back on just randomly retweeting stuff that just, like, pops up out of nowhere or feeding into the rage cycle. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I think the platforms have a responsibility around making sure the content isn't propaganda. You know, like what does it mean that Facebook still allows the Daily Wire to manipulate the algorithm and run secret pages? You know, like I think the platforms actually have to help us out there because as a consumer or as a user, like how would we know? You know, like I think that the platforms actually have so much data about us and certainly so much data about what travels and how it travels yeah. that they have to do a little bit more in the moment that we're in right now.
1: I agree. Yeah, they have to do a lot more. And we'll see what what becomes of Facebook. And, you know, obviously, Twitter is not running political ads and all that. But and the reason I wanted to talk to you about it also was because I, I remember listening to uh, a whole kind of NPR expose on it, specifically related to a couple of Black Lives Matters events that were created,
0: um, or at least infiltrated by Russian trolls a lot of researchers actually and reporters who had access to some of the tweets from those, from the, that the trolls amplified. And a set of my tweets are some of the ones they amplified. So I, so I'm sensitive to it. Mm. Um, we know that racism has always been a divisive topic in the country because there's some people who work to end it. And there's some people who who are okay with it because they benefit from it. Right. So Russia can't exploit something that we fix in the Russian exploitation of uh, the divisiveness of racism is a reminder that if we actually just dealt with it head on, it wouldn't be something to be exploited, right? So the longer and longer we delay changing institutions so that people aren't disproportionately impacted, like doing all the things that would make the country actually just for people, uh, it will always be open to exploitation, but it's not like this is a permanent thing. This is a present thing. This is here today because people have chosen and people benefit from it being present, but it doesn't have to be this way, right?
1: Yeah. That's
0: a great point. And that's what we should all be working towards,
1: and uh, and then they won't they won't be able to split us apart. So, to that end, what do you think is the most important thing that we should be doing right now in the lead up to November third, twenty twenty?
0: I think that right now uh, the focus is. On learning as much about candidates as you can, like making sure there's informed informed vote, you should be taking inventory of the people around you to see uh, how people are feeling about participating or not, so that when you need them to vote in November, next November, then you that you're like ready to make the argument in the case. We know that people who are part of social organizations uh, participate more. So, the getting ready to organize. I think that twenty, like twenty nineteen, is the get ready phase. I think that as we transition into twenty twenty, that's when people need to be uh, ready to do like door knocking, phone banking, like just uh, making connections with high schoolers who will be able to vote. Like that whole build the relationship, so that when you need people to do something in November, you actually have already built it. Right. I think the worst thing to do is wait until like October of twenty twenty, and then be like. Hey, let me start. Like, by then, it's not too late, because, you know, you can convince people to vote up until election day, the day itself. But it's just too late to to have the biggest impact. Yeah, the work needs to start now.
1: Your book is called On the Other Side of Freedom, A Case for Hope. What gives you the most hope for our future?
0: You know, I think I'm meeting all the incredible activists across the country, all the people who were just so and continue to be so passionate and so focused and so ready to risk it all. Like they give me hope. They, they're the people that like created this moment. I think about all the protesters I sit alongside in St. Louis, like it was the protesters that helped everybody really understand uh, that this is urgent and that it was possible and that we can press and we can fight and we can live and all those things. Uh, so that's where my hope comes from. It's like I travel across the country. I see so many young people, so many so many people, older people, so many people who found their voice for the first time and they believed what they found in a way that was just truly incredible. So that's where my hope comes from. Awesome.
1: Drey, thank you so much for being here with us and doing this. I really appreciate it. Cool. Talk to you later. Thank you for joining us today and for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We want to hear from you and we want your story. Please send us a note or even record yourself and email it to podcast at swingleft.org. We are so grateful for all of our subscribers. If you aren't a subscriber yet, please do subscribe and rate us on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share us with your friends and family over the holiday. Use the hashtag hashtag how we win 2020. Share our page at swingleft.org/podcast and of course sign up to volunteer. Thanks again to Deray for helping out this week. Mariah will be back with me next Wednesday for more stories from the field.